the number one question as we're talking about direct-to-consumer is, is it UPSable? Will it UPS? There's a certain girth dimension and a weight of 150 pounds. So right from the starting block, our engineering team, our design team knows exactly where to set those parameters, the thickness of the metal, how to bend it, how to form it, the critical points that need to be intact to make sure that it's robust while not exceeding that packaging, that weight limit requirement. Welcome to another episode of Supply Chain Therapy. I am your host, Alex Kent, joined by my co-host, Michelle McNamara. Michelle, what's going on? What's up, Alex? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Awesome. We have a great episode for you today. Our guest, Tom Newman, Supply Chain and Procurement Manager at Blackstone Products. Tom has a decorated career in moving big things. Before his griddle life, he was the director of supply chain planning and execution at iFit, which is a fitness app that operates in tandem with its own workout equipment. He's also held roles at Campbell Scientific, a manufacturer of full-scale data measurement systems and Orbit, best known for their irrigation solutions. Fun fact, Tom learned Mandarin during his early college years living in Taiwan and Beijing. We'll talk more about that in this episode. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here, and it's great to span the entirety of the United States all together. <laughs> you on one coast, Alex on the other, and I'm somewhere in the middle of the flyover zone. <laughs> That's right. Tell us where you are. I see you're, you're wearing some cold weather gear. Right. Very, very practical today. Um, <laughs> Logan, Utah, which is not out of the throes of winter yet, and in fact, just snowed this morning. And oh literally the piles next to my driveway are, are at my, like this level. So this hat actually has multi-purpose. Number one, <laughs> it's got an avalanche beacon in it so I can be found in case I'm lost. <laughs> Number two, it's keeping my head warm because, you know, I don't have, I, I'm clean on top, so I need protection. And number three, my colleagues tell me that my spirit animal is a garden gnome, so it fits. <laughs> a garden gnome. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. All right. Well, this is supply chain therapy after all, so we can't get too much further without a collective deep mm. breath. Ready? We inhale and we exhale. Oh, so relaxed. That's nice. But after that nice, relaxing breath, let's get into the juice, the drama. Do you have any fun challenges that you've experienced in your history that you care to share? I wanted to share with you all the story of the errant ferrite. Okay, so a ferrite, actually, it's also called an EMI choke or electromagnetic interference choke. It looks like a little, like a little metal donut. And so... This is my traumatic experience that I had. Early in the days, I was a development manager for Motorola Energy Systems Group, which I think doesn't exist anymore, but it was based in Lawrenceville, Georgia, Alex, just up the street okay. from where you are. And we were tasked with basically reverse engineering a product that the company that was building it had gone out of business. And so it was a desk set for cell phones. So you could take your cell phone and basically plug it in, mount it in this desk set, and then have it like a, like a phone on your desk. Really great idea. But anyway, so I had 
you know, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers doing all the layouts and the traces and the Gerbers and the, and, and everything, also including the software, all the way through to initial testing passed great. And then we started some small scale production and then sent some test units to Lawrenceville for testing. And they did what's called accelerated life test, which does temperature cycling. And what it, what happened was it became a box of rattles and that ferrite, which oh, no. attached to the power cord that comes in and is usually required because these electronic products have to go through FCC testing for electromagnetic interference testing. Anyway, that ferrite came loose from the, from the adhesive that we had been using. And it was like we spec'd every single part all the way down to what I thought was the most minute detail, except for the adhesive that was holding that ferrite. So lessons learned. I don't ignore anything on the bill of materials. I look all the way through, all the way to the very end, even the smallest, you know, whatever it is, including something like adhesive, because we had to, basically we had to cut production and we had, uh, we had some yield problems with everything we produced up to that point. We got it right. But since that point, my mantra has been, you know, just pay attention to the details. How much rework is involved in something like that? I'm trying to remember how many units we had produced. And I think, I think it was a matter of being able to open it up, remove the adhesive, reapply adhesive, make sure that the ferrite, as it was banging around in there, didn't knock loose any of the surface mounted components. But yeah, there was, as long as you can catch it early before it goes out to the end consumer, which, right. which we were able to do. But yeah, those things can happen. And you just, had we not gone through that temperature cycling of, of, you know, hot, cold, hot, cold, we never would have caught it. So that's another thing. I mean, just don't cut short on the testing that needs to be done to make sure a product meets all the specs. Yeah. And I think all the supply chain folks listening right now are nodding along. Like they probably have a very (laughs) similar experience. And anyone not in supply chain, they think, oh, like what's a small little change? What's that going to do? But really, it's a huge, a huge challenge. Wow. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, I'm sorry you went through that, but I'm glad that you're here today. (laughs) You survived. Thank you. Yeah, I survived. Yes. What didn't kill me made me stronger. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Love it. Let's switch over to your current company, Blackstone Products. Why don't you, for the listeners at home that haven't heard of it, maybe they live under a rock, haven't seen the TikTok (laughs) because it's got a big TikTok presence. What does Blackstone Products do? So Blackstone Products was actually started in about 2008 by our founder and current CEO, Roger Dolly. And his disruption mentality was, let's introduce variety and accessibility to outdoor cooking. And so just think of breakfast. Think of, you know, it's a participation sport. Griddling, you put two spatulas in your hands and you become Mr. Teppanyaki guy, right? You can (laughs) throw stuff around. It brings families together and friends together and it introduces food variety. So yeah, you think of, you know, eggs and, and small stuff that would otherwise be falling through the grill plates and, you know, the black science of a pellet stove, you know, you put it in there and you close it for three hours and then you come back and you hope something turns out. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned TikTok, a great venue for the kind of cooking dynamic that our product yeah. affords, right? You can be there and in, you know, a few short minutes, you can have that nice crust on the steak. You can sear and, and have, you know, veggies going on one side and the main course meat on the other side, buns down the middle. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And so since that time, it's been... In the biggest growing section of the outdoor cooking market. 
Michelle, you didn't tell me I was going to get hungry already. Um, I, I told myself I would eat before. I did not. <laughs> you, so, you miss, Tommy, you missed one thing, though. It's yeah, bacon, what? bacon, eggs, sausage, maybe a little bit of chorizo, and the hash browns. You got to have the hash yes. browns. Yes, and all of that is in your playing field of the yep. griddle that has sides. Nothing goes errant, nothing goes awry, and it's all there, and you can keep finished stuff and move it over and keep it warm. And Take a little yeah, chef snack every now and then, oh, toss yeah. some you to gotta, the dogs, you, sample. you know, of course. Yep. yep, and then the audience that's standing around you, hey, here you go, catch it. <laughs> <laughs> little, little volcano if you need to. <laughs> that's yeah, right. right. That's right, right, exactly. And what we just launched is, is, our, is our pizza oven. And I think it's right, yes. it's right here, if you can see it, for those who are watching at home. A great pizza oven. We just launched it. I just put one of these bad boys together at my house, and it's like, I've never looked back. It's wonderful. All right. So anyone <laughs> that is worth their salt in supply chain knows, Tom, are you crazy? Why are you shipping griddles? How are you <laughs> yes. doing D to C? It's so heavy. So can yes. you talk us through what that looks like? Good question. We have our, we know our thresholds and the number one question, if, as we're talking about direct to consumer, which is the fastest segment of our total channel to customer, is it UPSable? Will it UPS, right? <laughs> and so there's, there's a certain girth dimension and a weight of 150 pounds. We try to keep it as well under that as possible. But yeah, that's, those are their criteria. So right from, right from the starting block, our engineering team, our design team knows exactly where to set those parameters, the thickness of the metal, how to bend it, how to form it, the critical points that need to be intact to make sure that it's robust while not exceeding that, that packaging that weight limit requirement. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you talk about packaging, how to fit it all together with the as minimal amount of packaging as possible, but still to keep the package size small and the overall weight down. Right. So yeah, it's, that's a challenge. Especially so an average Joe like me can figure out how to put it together, right? I mean, you, yes. you have all the pieces there and it, that's part exactly. of it, right? That's part of the fun exactly. and putting together a new grill or a griddle or a pizza oven is having that excitement, that unboxing experience saying, oh yeah, I'm going to put this together and we're going to cook some food. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that hastens the anticipation knowing that there's a good meal at the end of it. That's putting right. it all together. Yeah. And so will you ever ship it with more than one box or is 150 oh, pounds the great. max? No. Perfect question. So this pizza oven is actually Tetris into a somewhat larger box. And we've found as we've launched it that we are facing challenges. There's weaknesses in the packaging. And so to meet a couple of these criteria, and I'll throw in one more, which is the punitive tariffs that are imposed on products that come from China. We mm -hmm. have to make sure that the overall kit, if you will. So if you've got box one of two and two of two, that they come together and they qualify for the same overall weight restriction, and then we can divide it out. Then you say, okay, what's the logical weight division between these two packages? And what we found is that not only can we divide it into two packages, but if we take, okay, we've got the top element of the pizza oven, it now becomes a tabletop item mm. that box one of two is actually one of one, and it just became a whole new skew unto itself. So those are some of the, you know, the, un, the unanticipated benefits that come out of that kind of dynamic of analyzing how to get how to ship stuff more efficiently. Now, are you doing different packaging for the things that you know are UPSable versus the things that you know are going maybe directly to a retailer? Are you, is it yeah. different packaging, different SKUs? Cause you can pack a lot more into a container that way for someone going to a retailer than a, you know, a container that's coming to your warehouse to go D to C. 
Exactly. And not only that, the cost difference between four-color lithography versus craft packaging makes a huge difference, too. Yeah. So direct-to-consumer can go in in craft packaging. It can be a little bit thicker. It can be a little bit more robust, if you will, knowing that it's retail, that it's going to be in a container, you know, mm-hmm. soup to nuts all the way through, that it'll be more protected and, and, and cared for along the way. Yeah, we, we do make some trade-offs there. But we also have thresholds in our product line where we say, hey, you know, this size griddle, it's not going to be a D to C. It's going to be a, it's going to be through the retail channel. Makes and then, sense. yeah, we develop two, two, two separate paths that way as well. This is a great segue into B2B because you guys have a really unique way that you do a lot of your B2B. Can you speak to that? Right. So you, you pointed out, I mean, our products are big. And so the idea of shipping them from Yentian or Shaman or Shanghai, whatever port in China, to L.A., then training it up to Salt Lake, then to, to Logan, and then on from there, yeah. that's not efficient. So we've, we've developed direct import programs with our largest customers, Walmart, Lowe's, Ace Hardware, where we basically sell it FOB, free on board, port of China. And that's really that's about 80% of our business goes mm. direct import. Now, the challenge there is each retailer has their own third-party logistics partner that they work with. They have their own unique yeah. pre-shipment inspections, pre-product you know, product testing requirements, because you know, the visibility for somebody like, like a Walmart, who's, in, who's the importer of record from China, they have to maintain certain, certain expectations and decorum of the factories that they source from. So there's a lot more uh, I wouldn't say a lot more, but it's different in terms of certifications and validations and inspections. And we have to get all of that tied up before we can launch that first container going directly to them. Mm. But that's most of our business. And it works well for both of us. Gets it to them more directly. They can actually see it from the time it leaves the port. They know exactly where it is in their system rather than wondering, okay, where along the way do you have it, Blackstone Products, right? right. So lots of benefits to that. Would you say it's more of a headache to do the B2B side or the direct-to-consumer side? I, because, because that's a great question. And I think because it's, um, we've developed that direct import methodology, we have a great team that works with me that manages, they each have their own dear, dear customers that they work with. Mm-hmm. They've got that pretty well nailed down. Now, direct-to-consumer, it's always that challenge of how do we make it shippable that way? But the advantage with uh, direct-to-consumer is bundling. I mean, the idea of being able to say, just have somebody get online and say, oh, I'll take the griddle, I'll take that starter kit, I'll take those tools, I'll take that mm-hmm. accessories. And the attachment rate for D2C is really, really good for us. So it, you know, there's challenges, but it pays off. And like I said, D2C is our, is our fastest growing segment of our two consumer channels. Yeah. So if there was another business out there considering direct import, what would you say are the pros and cons? Like maybe walk them through the process of, of how they would decide. Right. And I've got one of my great team members who probably could do some supply chain therapy because she goes through <laughs> it all the time. Oh, it's, no. that, it's that it's asking the questions that sometimes those retailers don't even know that they don't know. Like, mm-hmm. okay, Who's your third party logistics provider? What are their expectations in terms of how the bookings are done? You know, how to create the documentation, the timetables, which need to be very tight from the point that it leaves the factory to the port to getting on 
the ship to sending it off. And lead times now are, are coming way down in terms of ship space and, and container space availability. So it's mm-hmm. become a lot easier to say, okay, I need a booking. I can pretty well pick that time and do it. Compared but, to two I mean, years ago. <laughs> exactly. Or even or even six months ago. That's I mean, right, I've, yeah. we've watched dramatic declines in, in freight rates and availability of space. But it's like... You know, if I were to say, okay, here's a questionnaire, here's 20 questions of, you know, all the things that you need to think about to set up a direct import program. And as we've done that, lessons learned, those customers that have gone through that, a lot more upfront prevention of later on, oh, shoots, I wish I would have done this or I wish I Mm would have done that. So, yeah, those are the pros and cons. But, you know, to have somebody who's thought about it and been through it on some other programs to say, well, here's some lessons learned. Here's the best way. Here's a benchmark, best practices of how to do it. Nice. Awesome. All right. Let's move on to manufacturing. So manufacturing is very critical to Blackstone products. And you guys take a very thoughtful approach to your manufacturing process. Let's right. start there. T- tell us about your process. And you've really focused on that in the past few years. So so what's new right. in the past couple of years? So our model is ODM. We work with factory partners that come to the table with certain capabilities. It's not an mm-hmm. off-the-shelf design. There's things that we add to the mix. There's things that the factory presents and brings into the mix and such that we collaborate and we develop together. Now, For a sourcing guy, that makes it a little bit difficult because what you've now done is you've almost captivated yourself to say, I'm locked into this factory because they have helped co-develop this product. But over the past year and a half, our engineering team has done a great job of standardizing designs such that we now have SKUs that we can go to any number of our current factory portfolio and source it. And it's going to be you know, it's going to put together the same way. It's going to it's going to have service parts that are the exactly interchangeable. But yeah, that's those are the keys. So so the things that we think about is, you know, what does the factory bring to the table? And for us, it's do they know how to process metal? Do they know how to source metal? Do they know how to bend it and shape it and cut it? whether it's stamping or lasering, and then how to weld it together in the, in the right way. And then surface treatment is so critical because our products, they're, you know, they're put on the backyard, they're put in the back patio and they're exposed yeah. to the weather. And so you've got to have years and years of, of corrosion prevention to have, you know, to be able to say, you come out and fire it up in the spring and it looks just as good as it did when you bought it. So those are all things that we make sure that the factory brings to the table are all those technologies and those knowledge bases. What we focus on, what our secret sauce is, okay, heat flow, thermodynamics. How does the heat transfer on that griddle plate, right? Mm-hmm. How to how to make the orifice size on the gas rail to get the right BTU to heat ratio so the energy, the, the propane consumption is as efficient as possible while still allowing, you know, two, three, four heating zones, cooking zones. And so that's what we bring to the table. And so through that partnership, we've been able to go from what was Probably two, two or three years ago, we had two main manufacturers. We've now more than doubled that. And we've also got diversification in terms of geography. You know, mm. the concern about the mentality about China and, you know, putting all our eggs in the China basket. We now have a factory in Cambodia that we've ramped up on. We've got a factory in northern Vietnam wow. that's, that's going to be producing and shipping for us. So we have those options that keep us flexible on the table, depending on what we need and how the import winds blow and the political winds blow. Right. 
Sure. And so how do you pressure test, quality check? How do you test these new manufacturers? Were you able to visit the facilities or what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. So so the, the one trip that I have taken in like almost four years uh, I feel was that. <laughs> to yeah was to northern <laughs> Vietnam to visit okay. this uh, this uh, this factory up you, you know in terms of handing to them specifications that they need to maintain you know it's certain metal constituencies and ingredients so we're we're making sure of that when we when they send us samples we test that we test the surface treatment how it's prepared and cleaned and then how it's treated afterward because we condition those griddle plates much as you would when you're buying a cast iron pot mm-hmm. um you know they're they're conditioned the same way so we have to make sure okay what what vegetable oil are you using? What's the ingredients in that to make sure that we get the right seasoning on that on that surface? Because it's going to be in contact with the food, and and that's really critical to performance. And then you know we've got a whole R and D lab that does all kinds of tearing apart and cross sectioning and chemical testing and and lots of life testing, which means they've got to cook a lot of stuff. So because my <laughs> office is right next to the test lab, I benefit from that too. <laughs> oh, I love that. Any any really great meals that they've tested that you've got to oh, enjoy? Yeah, there was a uh, a Reuben sandwich pizza that came oh. out of the out of the cook kitchen just maybe Hold a week on. ago. A Reuben uh, sandwich pizza? Exactly. All exactly. Right. Yep, yep. You have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I gave him feedback. Could have been a little bit more sauerkraut and some more pickles in there. The, um, the other one, okay. The other one, the other one, pad thai pizza. Pad thai oh, pizza. Yeah. You know, pad thai noodles. Imagine mm-hmm. that on a pizza. So, can it pizza? You know, we have our, can, is it UPSable? The new phrase is, can it pizza? And so, pretty much that's the path they're running on nowadays today. The verbs yeah. coming out of Blackstone. <laughs> Um, All right. right. Also related to overseas manufacturing, we mentioned at the top of the call that you speak Mandarin. When did you learn it and how has that been helpful for you working with overseas Uh, partners? Okay, so early in my college career at Brigham Young University, I had the chance to do a couple of years of voluntary religious service. And I got sent to Taiwan. And back then, I had to look Taiwan up on a map. I didn't know where it was. (laughs) But it's my... It's like my second home. And wow. I spent two years there loving the food, loving the people, loving the culture. And it just, I just got hooked. And so I came back basically saying, okay, whatever I was going to study before, I'm going to combine it with Mandarin Chinese and Asian studies. Mm-hmm. And so, um, wow. from, from there, I did, I did those two years, then I came back and finished at BYU. Then I went down to a graduate school called Thunderbird down in Arizona and was able to do a semester abroad in Beijing. You mentioned studying in Beijing. So cool. Beijing in 1988. So keep in mind, um, Tiananmen, the Tiananmen incident, that was the summer of 1989. I was there the summer of 1988. Very exciting time to be in China. Bicycles everywhere and probably one car for every. 200,000 bicycles. It was a crazy time back then. But yeah, since that point, yeah, I, my, I've been absolutely connected to 
Asia and specifically greater China. So throughout my career, ended up joining with General Motors, which is another big things company, right? I spent 12 <laughs> yeah. years with General Motors. <laughs> Several years in, in uh, Hong Kong, and then up in this little community of called Tianjin up in northern China, this small town of 15 million people, and then uh, a few years in Hong Kong, uh, uh, Shanghai as well. So all in mm-hmm. maybe 20 years living in China, but just love it. And it really, it really is so useful to be able to meet, you know, the factories way more than halfway. Their English is great, no problem. But for example, I have no problem going down to the factory floor and saying, hey, let me see that work instruction that you've got there. What does it tell you to do at this step? And I don't have to take anybody else's word for it. I can read it. I can talk to the operators. So it's really all in. It's been a great a, a great boon to my, my whole career. And I wouldn't be where I was today without that knowledge and experience. Oh, that's incredible. That's fantastic. Any entertaining stories of your, your trips when you <laughs> look at the manufacturing yeah. floors or whether it's Mandarin related or not? I'm just curious. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So one about, one about China and then I'll talk to you about my one experience in India, which okay. was absolutely mind blowing <laughs> for me. So China, China from the early days onward, visiting factories, they were very hospitable, right? They wanted to be the best host possible. Yeah. So they, your first visit, they would lay a spread out on the table. They would have uh-huh. fresh fruit and candies and, and pastries and whatever. And then they'd pay attention to what you ate, what you took. And then the next time that you visited, there would be much more of that. Aww. Well, that sounds like my mom. She would do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. You know, every factory had a, had a full fridge of Coke Zero. Oh. Well, back in the day, it was Diet Coke. Yeah. So me was Diet Coke. That was this, your thing. I, one of the companies I worked with, yeah, the CFO, he did not like Chinese food. So he was always bringing his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with him. So every factory would have peanut butter and jelly and bread for him. And they would bring that out and, you know, take care of him. They were always so very accommodating. Love it. Second story about India, first trip to India, first and only trip to India. I never went, I never got poked, inoculated, vaccinated so much when mm. I went to China is when I went to India hmm. and they, and I had malaria pills and this kit for this and rabies and da da. And so I was kind of hyped up to the point that I packed half of an entire suitcase full of ramen and granola bars thinking, okay, if I have to just go off grid and just survive on this, I can. Well, <laughs> suffice it to say, I got picked up by our country manager. He swept us off to Agra, Taj Mahal, and from that point on, I didn't even I didn't even open that suitcase. Every meal I ate was local. Loved oh. it. Absolutely loved it. So it's kind of like that. You know, you, you build yourself up this mindset of, of anticipation and anxiety. Yeah. And then, you know, it's all for naught because it all works out in the end. I just find that there's people there that will take care of you wherever you go in the world. And that's what I love about about the work I've been involved in. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, we're getting near the end. The one last question I want to ask is just career advice. What career advice would you give to someone entering supply chain? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I will say this about myself before I'll say about anybody else. I'm just a dumb ops guy, right? <laughs> I come to the table and that's all I that's all I bring to the table. However, I will say this. Anyone can be at least a dumb ops guy and then some. And I would say supply chain is one of those agnostic fields where you bring whatever career background, whatever knowledge you have, whatever experience, book learning, whatever your education is, bring it. 
and it will it will aid you in in your work with supply chain, whether it's financial, marketing, any kind of technical knowledge that you have. And I see the whole gamut. And I, you know, my background was marketing with some finance, but you know, I've been able to pick things up along the way. And I would just say that don't don't think that because oh you've you graduated in marketing you can't get into supply chain operations because. Come one, come all. It's open to anyone and you bring whatever knowledge you have and you apply it and then you add to it. And no, maybe that's my mentality, but, and it's, and it's done well for me, but that's the way my career has gone. And so I would say that to anybody else thinking about the same thing on the other end of the career from me, from where I am right now. Except for those sales guys, right? You can leave the sales guys out. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's even, there's even a warm place in my heart for sales guys, Alex. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that, Tom. Let's move on to our speed round here. I'm going to hit you with some fun questions and I'm going to start with what is uh, the best mountain to ski in Utah? Okay. So first of all, let's just say the best snow is Utah snow. It's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely incredible snow this season. And it's going to be one of those seasons where I put away my snow skis on the same way, same weekend that I'm getting the wakeboard out to go out on the nice. lake. Yep. It's like, you know, the state of that water has changed from frozen to liquid, and I'm now going to enjoy both. So, yeah, I prefer there's a resort called Snow Basin that's located about midway between Logan and Salt Lake. Okay. It's a great resort, got great variety, but really, I mean, there's so many good places, so many good mountains, and everybody, all of them are having a great year this year. That's great. Great to hear. Are you watching anything good right now? Okay, so I am... Bin, I know I'm a little bit behind the curve, but I'm binge watching Better Call Saul. Okay, right? I'm I'm in I'm in third third season of Better Call Saul. I I don't know if either of you've uh -uh. seen any of that. I've gone through three seasons fairly quickly, and then a couple other things that I'm that I'm I'm watching and listening to. One is a great podcast about the River of Doubt, and I don't know if you guys know the history. 1914, Theodore Roosevelt and his son Kermit head off to uh, to the Amazon, and there's this just-discovered tributary literally called the River of Doubt, the Doubt River. And I forget how to say it in Portuguese. But he and a, and a team of explorers and naturalists, they trek 400 miles across the, the Amazon tundra wow. to get to the headwaters, and then they float down this river, and they're missing for months. Nobody mm. knows where they are. So this is early 1914, right? Flash ahead a hundred years. The other thing that I'm watching is a documentary about MH370. Yeah. And that, mm -hmm. that went down what March of 2014. So a hundred years apart, who would have thought you've got these two things that are going into the middle of nowhere and just disappearing. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, he eventually came out with his son, but you know, it's, it's really interesting to, to, to kind of compare and contrast, but yeah, a little bit of, I'm into nonfiction history. So that's what I'm, that's when I'm not doing supply chain stuff. That's what I'm, when you're not doing my supply head. chain things or you're on a mountain or in the water, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. All yeah. right, Tom. Well, yeah. last, last question here is what did I not ask you that you want to talk about? So I just, you know, we've talked about paying attention to the small stuff. We've talked about the collaboration. We've talked about the importance of 
of everyone bringing their, 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 the division of labor and specialization to the table. One of the things, and, and I, and, and it's like a, you know, what's next for Blackstone products? You know, 2008 to probably the mid 2000 teens, we were surviving on maybe 30 SKUs. Mm-hmm. And that got us late, late, I think it was 2018, 19, we broke into triple digit millions, right? Since that time, in the past four years, we've tripled sales, but we also have almost 1,200 SKUs today. Wow. So here's the idea, Alex. Think about this. And this, you know, both of you coming from where you're coming from, let's think about late point differentiation. Let's take a standardized basic griddle box, the burn box, as we call it, and we inventory that. That's one SKU. Right. We also have side shelves and hoods and front shelf and bottom panels and other accessories that you can add on yeah. to the point where from that one SKU with a little bit of value add, late point differentiation, you can maybe create a hundred SKUs out of that. Right. And I, th- I think, I think, you know, we're, we're just on the verge of starting to think about that kind of thing. You know, we have to get to the point where it becomes economically feasible to do that kind of value add somewhere closer to the market, but anywhere you can bring that final homologation as close to the end consumer as possible, that's when you really get good good consumer satisfaction. So those are the things. That's kind of the next chapter. You know, maybe we can get together in another year or so and see, okay, what have we done with with that? We would and, love that. Uh, you know, yeah, see where we are then. That's amazing. That's amazing, Tom. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on this episode and joining Michelle and I. And, and thanks for making great products. People love it. So I can't wait to get my hands on one. Great. Yeah. Get in touch with me. I'll hook you up. <laughs> or at least I'll, I'll, I'll extol them as, as well as I possibly can from personal experience. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Alex, Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.